I'd ever told him. I think a lot of us didn't tell because we were afraid how people reacted. I reported my sister missing four years ago. I haven't heard anything back. Nobody local, either church or uh, county council or anyone in authority, they didn't want to hear about it. I have a tear in my eye right now, actually, in the sense of we have to fight so hard to get where we are. They'll even come They'll after even your come soul and chew it and she refuse to release it. The Tume Mother and Baby Home opened officially in 1925 as a place for unmarried women to give birth to their children who were subsequently fostered or adopted. I was born in the Mother and Baby Home in Tume in 1944, 29th or 6th, 1944, yeah. And uh, I was born in the in the Hospital in Galway. And uh, I was kept in the hospital for six days. My mother... She, she was kept there for 12 months in the tomb here to look after babies and clean up and all that stuff. And most of the time, she, she, a lot of the time, she'd be minding other children and feeding them and dressing them and all that. But I believe we were kept separated in, in case we would bond. The most important parts of our lives, we were separated. In a Catholic society where having children outside of marriage was considered sinful above all else, the stigma and shame clung to many of the so-called home babies well into adulthood, as Peter Mulrine remembers. Uh, I, was, I was about 19 at the time, yeah. Was, you know, trying to find out something about myself. Nobody tell me where I came from. I was so bad. I used to, uh, especially after getting the beatings, uh, I'd go out at night and I'd look around stars and say where am I from I go from west to south east and north and I was attracted to one area and to to, 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 to the west of the house where I lived in was my attraction where the sun set I, I did have a, a number of girlfriends, like that's not naturally enough, yeah. Mine was over 20. And uh, I'd go to a dance, I'd go to a carnival to school that time, and I'd meet someone and we'd make good friends. But the longest I could stay in their company would be about four times, you know. But after that, my system completely dried up. I, I couldn't, nothing to talk about. I couldn't say who I was. I'd, I'd mention my name and say, oh, I never heard of that name before, like, you know, family in that village. No, I couldn't say where I was from. Never. So I would just disappear. And that went on until I was up to 27 years of age, 28. Looking enough, she was local. She was within a mile of where I lived. She, she knew of me, like, you know, we'd meet at church or something like that, you know, casually meet in the shop. And in our family, they reared a guy who was about 12 or 15 years older than me. And they would have, he was treated very, very well. They were very gentle. So she didn't know any difference. I never had to introduce myself so where I'm where I'm living around. Right she knew. So that otherwise I wouldn't have got married. I wouldn't have got married. That was my mind, Meadow. Before Peter and Kathleen could get married, he needed his birth certificate. 
but with such an uncertain start in life, had no easy access to his records. After a long search, he was eventually given the address of the house where his mother came from. Living in that house were relatives he had never known about, including his uncle Tom. And then they had spotted me on the, on the paper the year I, I won some competition for singing. And I remember years back, this man cycling down by the house where I was living in. It was a lovely summer's day, a tall man sitting up on the bike going very easy, continuously looking in as passing by the house. And I said, I think he's going to stop, like, you know. And I remember that as clear. I think I met up with him again. And it was him. He was trying to find out where I was because they wanted me back in their house because none of them got married and they were moving on in years. He told me this afterwards. And he said he saw me out in the front of the house and I was weeding, leaning up in the front of the house. He thought I was happy where I was. He said he didn't want to get involved. Yeah. I suppose it was 13 that time, like, you know. They often thought about it. Would they didn't want to upset me then, take me away. Oh, God, if I only, if I only did that. There was a further surprise for Peter when he was told his mother was living in the Magdalen Laundry in Galway City. The laundries were 19th century institutions, both Catholic and Protestant, and women were sent there for many reasons, including having a child when unmarried. In reality, there were places where women worked long hours in appalling conditions without pay or the freedom to leave voluntarily. Women who gave birth in a mother and baby home often ended up in one of these laundries. I went in and met just no nanny at the door and she asked what I was doing and I said, I'm looking for my mother. Tried to wait two weeks before I got to see her. And when you do, when you come back, she, she says, don't ask for your mother, look for your aunt. So I went anyway and was brought in into a small little room, quarter size this, sit down and... It was allowed together for about 10 or 15 minutes to buy in tea and a couple of marriages of biscuits to us. And, but the door was left open, so I couldn't talk. I didn't know what to ask. She was there with her head down. I saw her feet. The, and there was blue. Blue was that cable. Bl- and blisters all over her. It looked so old. She, and she, she, she said very, very little. Like So I left anyway and arranged to come back in and came back in two weeks later. Peter continued to go regularly to the Magdalen Laundry in Galway City to see his mother. I used to bring her out to the local shop, loud out for 20 minutes. And then we ended up bringing her out to the seaside. And this is well over a year at this stage now, and uh, probably a year and a half later after meeting her. So we had, we had, we had a great baby girl then, was about when we first met. She was seven or eight months less, seven or eight months, yeah. So we're sitting down out in Silver Strands, sitting on the wall, and I gave her the baby on her knee. It's the first time I saw her smiling. She didn't want to talk about the place or anything. She was like a woman who swore into silence. They had no life at all, and they're all for nothing like, you know. They were so badly treated there. It was horrible. I would have about nine years altogether was going and coming like, you know, yeah. yeah. But she, the day she died... She was same. She looked the same woman as the day I met her. She improved. She improved because things got easier then. (laughs) 
Teresa O'Sullivan also grew up in the home in Shum. Her adopted family lived in Cork, where she had a happy childhood. Despite health issues, she attributes to the neglect she suffered in Shum. However, the question of who she was and where she came from was never far from her mind. I started after my um, first baby was born. And and just to say there that during my pregnancy, before he was born, I was absolutely terrified of having a baby because I had no background whatsoever. There was no history of anything. And I was really, really concerned about it. Um, it turned out that he was a beautiful boy and I went on to have a beautiful girl as well. And I, after he being born, I decided in my 30s that I was going to go looking. So I literally went in and I said, I just want to know who I am. I said, I want the papers, I want the background. It took me a long time to find them because when I went in, they were saying, oh, there wasn't anything there. And I pursued it. I suppose one of the things I suppose that did help because I was in the kind of the profession, I suppose, of nursing, I kind of knew how things worked a little bit. You know, I knew what social workers were. I knew what direction multidisciplinary teams were and that. And I think that helped me an awful lot because I didn't take no for an answer. I was going and I was going to keep going because I felt if they had that much information, they must have had more information. And uh, they did eventually come back and say that they had found her in London. She and many of the Tune children have spent their whole lives searching, searching for information, searching for records, searching for their biological family. And she used to go to Lourdes and pray that I'd turn up from somewhere. And she had the most beautiful, lively personality, you know, and she had huge kindness Despite everything that had happened for her, she still retained her natural self. And I'm sure I have no doubt that she held so much trauma. And I think that's important that even though you mightn't be reared with them, that naturally enough, some of their own personality uh, is brought through the characteristics of genetics and all that kind of thing as well, you know. Because the day I met her, one of the light things was she had a glass of orange with no ice and neither did I. And I didn't know she had things like that. But there was just something. And she wore pink nail varnish and so did I. Teresa also found out that she was no longer an only child. Her mother had married and she now had five new siblings. And she also had questions about her father, but time was not on her side. I have never met him and he has passed away. She arranged that to, she arranged that uh, she would speak with him after 40 years and give me the opportunity that maybe we both might meet him or I'd meet him myself. But ironically, what happened, he said that he was married and he had a son. But whatever happened, we got this letter back saying that he wasn't going to meet at all. And if we pursued it, they'd take us to court. Now, from what I can gather, it wasn't him that wrote the letter at all. I have no idea who wrote the letter. I'm in my 
early 60s now and now I'm reflecting back and I'm looking back and there's a huge sadness looking back as well for what could have been. That's what I mean by the nearly there and almost. He died the time I was looking for him, so it was another missed opportunity. But who I have met is his son and his family. So I have lovely relationships with them as well. After giving up her son for adoption and spending 12 years working in America, Christine Carroll moved back to Ireland, to County Galway. I came back one time for a visit and I uh, just met my husband in a pub. And we, as I say, we clicked. Yeah. I I was married in in the 12th of July, 1979. And I had six kids, four girls and one boy. Uh, I had a girl in and she she died. Because of the shame associated with being a so-called home baby, Christine was reluctant to talk to her husband about her previous life. He was an alcoholic, the poor thing. He died about 17 years ago. I never told him. No. I I um I think a lot of us didn't tell because we were uh, we we were afraid how people reacted. Like other survivors of Tume, Christine was also curious about meeting her mother. And as many other survivors know, family reunions were not always happy occasions. My mother was an unmarried mother and her family brought her to Tume. And uh, and she had me in the home. And after a couple of weeks after having me, she left the home and that was it. Her, her old family disowned her, you might say. At that time, you know, uh, people were very ashamed of people that are, were our married mothers. When I was born, we were known as uh, illegitimate. So... Uh, her family didn't want to hear that, so they were embarrassed more than anything else. So they wanted to, to get her out of sight, out of mind, kind of thing. When people find out that you want to know these things, they kind of say, oh, they're rocking the boat, in other words. Leave well enough alone. But that doesn't go in our minds. We want to know things, and we're not ashamed to ask for it. I wrote to her, I got her address and I wrote to her, I was getting married at the time, and I asked her if she'd come to my wedding. And she said if she was to come, that she had to be known as my aunt. And I wrote back, no way, Jose. You either admit you're my mother or forget it. She died about a couple of years ago. And there was someone else Christine wanted to reunite with from her time in America, her son. I'd met him and everything, and but he he uh, it didn't it turned out good the first time I met him in Maryland Park, but it turned out when I went to America, uh, we met again. But uh, he kept asking for the father, and I was I was mad. I said. I, I'm the one that went through the hell, so why, you know. But um, 
My kids keep in contact with them, but I don't, you know, you see. But he's happy and it's main thing. The Tune Mother and Baby Home closed in 1961 and Ireland's last Magdalen Laundry closed in 1996. The increasing secularisation of Irish society and increasing prosperity signalled the end of the road for religious-run institutions for unmarried women and their children. But the closure of these institutions was not the end of this shameful chapter in Irish history. Close over the concrete slab quickly. Blank your thoughts. Bless yourself. Don't look at the small skulls. Don't check if the hair is still growing. Don't take a deep breath. Do not breathe. It was the end of May 2014, and I will never forget that because it was from that moment on that my life changed, was completely turned upside down. But uh, to me, there was no option. And I realised if I didn't talk, then it would go away again. An explosive story was about to hit the media and shock the nation. Galway historian Catherine Corliss became interested in the two mother and baby home when she began hearing stories of hidden bones and mysterious deaths. My research into the Tume home started way back in 2012. Uh, it was just for um, Nessie, for the local journal, historical journal, and I got the staggering result from the births, deaths, marriages in Galway that 796 children had actually died in the home between 1925 and 1961 when the Bonscourt sisters were running that home. Nobody, either church or uh, county council or anyone in authority, they didn't want to hear about it. When I went there to investigate, I just saw a walled-off area with the lovely grotto and uh, planted roses, and it was kept nice. So I inquired as to who was buried there, and that's when I got the story of the boys found in the bones, and uh, the locals didn't seem to know who exactly these bones belonged to. So um, I started uh, looking at the old maps then, and I realised that this area had been a sewage uh, tank area, a sewage pit in the time of the workhouse. So um, then I knew then there couldn't possibly be um, famine victims that were in, in that pit because it was a working sewage area right up to the 1930s. NUI Galway historian Sarah Ann Buckley agrees. I think that institutions in Ireland, whatever their initial means or what their intentions were, institutions in Ireland became very punitive they became places not of refuge, but places where women and children were treated incredibly badly. In the case of Tume, this wasn't just in life, it was also in death, as we can see from the way in which so many of the infants were buried or disposed of. Catherine Corliss' findings made headlines around the world as a revelation that 796 children had been buried in a septic tank at the Tume site. It brought global attention to Ireland's mother and baby homes. It also made an impact closer to home and to those who were closest to the story itself. When they left that home, um, they left it with shame. They went through their lives with shame, that you just don't talk about it, that they were afraid to try and contact their family or to try and find family. The best thing about the breaking of that story was um, it gave uh, survivors courage. I noticed them coming to me one by one. Only for Catherine Corliss, I wouldn't know I had a sister. And I think Peter Mulrine must have been the first person that came to me because um, he had carried this uh, stigma with them all his life. Peter's story was just absolutely harrowing. And uh, what he had come through 
And I just noted his gentle nature and his calmness and his kindness, even after all he was through. And uh, it was in the course of that I started doing a bit of research for him. And I also found that he had a sister. Now, he never knew that. He was absolutely amazed. She was born 10 years after him, but she had died. And no death cert, of course. Oh, there was, sorry, there was a death cert, but no burial cert. And I had to tell him the possibility of that she may be in that pit. Like other survivors, Peter was now faced with the search for relatives he never knew existed. Without knowledge of which files he was searching for, and the denial of access to some private records in particular, Peter, like so many others, was forced to familiarise himself with the bureaucratic maze of state bodies and agencies. I reported my sister missing four years ago. haven't heard anything back, nothing whatsoever. I want to know where my sister is. She's 10 years younger than me. She was born in 1954. And I haven't a clue. Like, to be left like that in limbo. And, and uh, what did she die from, I want to know. Was it starvation? Was it neglect? Fall? We don't know. But if they know, the state knows, if we get DNA done, we'll know all these answers straight away. Catherine Peter and some other survivors believe that only the exhumation of the bodies and DNA testing will help family members finally get the information they need. Their response is clear to those who say the past should be left in the past. As I've stated, it's a moral issue more than anything. To leave the babies there means they don't matter. In saying that, that means that the brothers, that the survivors who have family buried there, they don't matter either. I tell people, put yourself in the shoes of the survivors. If you have a little brother or sister in a sewage tank where the water is still percolating and the bones have been drifted and shifted all over the place, could you rest easy with that? You must put yourself in the, in, in the mindset and in the shoes of the people who have suffered because this is of major importance to them. I can't put words and describe how humans can do that to other humans. I mean, if there was one of their siblings was in there, how would they feel about it? I know that I don't have I'm I don't have a brother and sister there, but yet we all feel it, you know. Even the first time when I went, and you you're going on that grass and you're wondering, am I stepping on a poor little thing? Whatever it takes, we only get one chance to do this. We owe it to them. We have to do it right. Coming up. I'm glad now we're coming out with all of it. And nothing to be embarrassed about. Never thought I'd see the day when I could stand up in front of a class of maybe 40 people and I would hold them still. It made me cry. And as well as that, she was on my side. Individual memories and collective memory are really important and Irish society needs to listen to survivors or we will continue to repeat all of these abuses. This programme is a Neon City Stories production in conjunction with the Two Moral History Project at NUI Galway. Narrated by Killian Murphy. Excerpts from the poems Blood, Child and the Harvest by Elaine Feeney, created and produced by Sarah Ann Buckley, Lorna Farron and Orla Higgins. Script by Orla Higgins and Lorna Farron. Editing and sound design by Alan Meany. 
audio direction by Orla Higgins and original soundtrack by Anna Malarkey. Recorded at Flirt FM, NUI Galway and Bounce Sound, Dublin.